Welcome, everybody. Um, my name is John. Uh, I'm the campus pastor for RUF at UVM, and this is our Wednesday night fellowship. It really is a time for us to come together to eat some food, uh, to sing some songs, uh, to hear from God's word. And uh, this semester, we are looking at um, relationships. Uh, we said at the beginning that the quality of our life is best measured by the quality of our relationships. And these are relationships that Jesus has come to make good, happy, healthy, whole again. Our relationship with God, uh, our relationship with ourself, uh, our relationship with other people, and as we'll see uh, after spring break, uh, just sort of the relationship with the world. Um, last week, we looked at the dating relationship, and tonight, uh, we're going to look at the marriage uh, relationship uh, between husband and wife. Uh, I mentioned last week that um, I did not date very well. Uh, I had lots of dating relationships that went sideways and ended up getting dashed uh, on the rocks. Uh, The situation and the details would vary, but inevitably, one or both of us decided uh, that enough was enough. We had gotten bored with each other or we had gotten annoyed with each other. We got into too many fights, and so we do what couples do uh, when they break up. We reach for that big red eject button you all know about, right? We hit it, and push, right? We both exited the relationship. Well, for well over a decade, that was my experience. Uh, I would enter into a relationship. I would ride some emotional roller coaster before one or both of us would say, okay, this is enough, and we would leave. And doing that was exhausting, it was nauseating. And yet I kept getting back in line. Uh, I kept coming back for more. And the hopes that I would someday meet someone I would never want to hit the eject button on or never hit the eject button for. And for the longest time, that is what I thought marriage was. I thought marriage meant meeting and then marrying someone you never wanted to hit the eject button on or for. But that thinking changed uh, for me uh, about a year into my marriage with Megan. About a year into my marriage with Megan, I found myself at that all too familiar moment. She did too, right? We both wanted out. Um, marriage was hard, it was exhausting, it was overwhelmed by all of the baggage that we brought into our marriage. We were fighting all the time, fighting who could hit the eject button first. It's like, I'm gonna hit the button, and you're like, not before I do. And so we both reached out to hit this big red eject button. Again, you know the one. We pushed it. Nothing happened. Get out of the way. Let me do it. Pushed it. Nothing happened. It wasn't that the button was broken. What had happened was the button was now encased in glass. And the button was encased in glass the day we stood before our friends and our family And we promise to never leave or forsake the other. See, we got married on August 28, 2010. But in many ways, this was the moment, this was the day that our marriage really began. It was when we wanted to run, but we stayed. It's when we reached for the eject button, but we hit glass, which slowed us down. uh, And it stopped us in our tracks. This was, in some ways, the starting line um, of our marriage, uh, where we were ready to, I think, finally learn what love is and what love really requires.
And this is what I want to talk to you about tonight. I want to talk to you about this relationship called marriage. And I'd like to look at it under three headings. The essence of marriage, uh, the messiness of marriage, and then the drama uh, of marriage. But just like last week, I have a few caveats, a couple of disclaimers. Um, I think I should have been issuing these a little bit sooner in the series. Uh, Caveat number one, what I'm well aware of is that we enter into this conversation um, and we enter into marriage uh, with lots of baggage. Uh, for, some, for some of you, this is the, the baggage that you bring into this, this discussion tonight, maybe even bring into your future marriage, uh, is this idea that marriage is going to fix you, which is why you obsess about it. You just can't stop thinking about it. You think that marriage is going to solve all of your problems. It's going to solve your problem with pornography. It's going to solve your, your problem with loneliness. It's going to solve the problem of your low self-esteem. Uh, Simba just can't wait to be king, and you just can't wait to be cleave, right? To be joined to someone because you think this is going to be the solution to all of my problems. And I hate to break it to you right away, but before marriage fixes you, it's going to show you your problems uh, in just technicolor detail. For some of you, this is the baggage you bring in. It's unhealthy or unrealistic expectations of what marriage is. For others, the baggage that you bring into this conversation tonight is skepticism and fear. Maybe some of you um, grew up in families that had really unhealthy marriages and they ended up in divorce. That is my experience. Others of you grew up in families where mom and dad didn't get divorced, but you kind of half-heartedly wish that they would because it was, there was just so much fighting, so much bickering. And so when we talk about marriage, it's a sore subject, it's a raw subject, it's painful. You're like, why would I sign up for something like that? And then there are others of you who, uh, when we talk about marriage, you're not excited about it for another reason. You're afraid of tying yourself to somebody, of binding yourself to somebody. Maybe that's slowing you down or limiting your career or limiting your potential. All that is to say, I realize in a room this size with so many different people, there's lots of different expectations, there's lots of different fears, there's lots of different baggage, there's lots of different noises sort of banging around in your head and heart about this topic. And here I come and I'm just another voice. I don't want to add to the noise. I hope tonight in some ways what I'm able to accomplish is to turn some of that noise down so that you really can hear God's voice over the den. So it's caveat number one. Okay, I just want you to know I know uh, that this is what we kind of bring to the table. The second caveat is this. Megan and I are coming up on nine years of marriage this August, and that feels like a miracle sometimes. Like, that's a lot of grace. Um, if you look at my married life, you will not see perfection. I promise you that. But I do think you'll see progress. Um, We are not where we were nine years ago, and nine years from today, I trust we won't be where we are today. Um, So that's that. There's a saying that um, God doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the called. And I think that applies to a lot of things. I think it applies to our work. I think it applies to parenting. I think it certainly applies to marriage. Um, God did not bring Megan and I together because we were awesome at loving But I think marriage is this powerful tool that he uses to shape us and a school that he has enrolled us in to just learn what love is and what love requires.
So we were not great at it at the beginning, but it's in this context of covenantal love, marriage, that we're kind of learning what love is. So caveat number two. Caveat number three, I'm not a marriage expert, right? Uh, I'm a bumbling husband uh, who is stubborn and takes, have to learn things the hard way. Um, because I'm relatively young in my marriage, um, and I've only been married, yeah, not that long, I'm leaning heavily on a wisdom outside myself. It's the wisdom of the Bible. It's also the wisdom of other men and women in my life. And three, I think, are really worth mentioning. Matt Howell, Matt Terrell, Tim Keller, these guys have spoken into my life significantly on this subject. So if you're hearing good things, odds are it's theirs, their contribution. And finally, okay, the passage that we're going to look at tonight, Ephesians 5, 21 and following, has the S word in it. Okay, has the word submit. And uh, if that triggers you, it triggers me too. Okay, so just know that at the outset, I understand we're not going to gloss over it. We're not going to ignore it or pretend it's not there. We're going to talk about it, but it's right. It comes right away in the passage. And I just don't want you to like get triggered and deafened to everything else that follows. All right. Just stick with me. We're going to get there. I promise. But just listen, you know, to what the passage is saying. And caveat number four. All right. You with me still? Yeah. Lengthiest introduction ever. <laughs> Let's go. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Here's what God has to say to us tonight. Be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Pray with me, if you will. Uh, this is God's word, not my own, so I'm going to ask for his help to understand it. Father, thanks for bringing us together this Wednesday night. In the midst of a busy midterm week, um, lots on our minds, whether it's just the, the shock of a test that we've just taken or the excitement of a spring break ahead, I pray you'd help us to be present to hear what you have to say to us tonight. Um, I pray, Lord, you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that's ready to receive and believe, to understand. I pray, Lord, you'd give us a better understanding of what marriage is, and even a better understanding of the ways that you love us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first one I want to make tonight uh, really is under this heading, The Essence of Marriage. Uh, there's a common scene in, in movies. Uh, maybe you've said something like this yourself. But there's this guy and this girl, and they're bickering. One of them wants to get married. The other one's like, no, I don't want to get married. And what gets said is, 
Why do we need a piece of paper in order to love one another? Um, I don't need a piece of paper to love you, right? It only complicates things. It's a popular idea. It's a popular notion. And implicit to this statement is this idea that love is a feeling. And since love is a feeling, I don't need a piece of paper to tell me that I love you. If that's all it was, if love is just a feeling, that statement's absolutely true, right? We don't need a piece of paper, right, to, to tell us that we love somebody. But according to the Bible, love is more uh, than a feeling. It doesn't dismiss feelings. It doesn't say feelings are irrelevant, right? God gave us feelings. He gave us emotions for a reason, right? They're good. It's just that love can't be reduced to a feeling only. It's more than that. Uh, we can think of our emotions as waves on, on an ocean. And just like waves, like our emotions, they ebb and they flow. Right? They go up and they go down. But also in the ocean, there's this deeper, more powerful force, right? This current beneath the waves. And that is what I liken to love. Uh, it's this deeper commitment to something or someone regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. No matter whether it's calm or stormy on the surface, love is this deeper current, right? This deeper movement that says, I'm going to be, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be this for you. It's more than a feeling, right? Love is a verb. It's an action verb. Love is committing yourself to something or someone. And it's committing yourself uh, to their good. Not the waves, the current underneath, pushing, driving, right beneath the surface. You should raise your hand with me if you've ever been to a wedding before. Anyone ever been to a wedding? Most of you have. They're fun, right? Uh, There's usually... (laughs) That was enthusiastic. (laughs) Tell me the stories after. I want to know what wedding you mean. There's usually good food, right? There's good dancing. But sometimes lost in all the hubbub, if we just focus on the wedding dress, we focus on the layered cake, we focus on, you know, bouquets, um, we can lose sight of what a wedding really is uh, and is all about. What a wedding is, ultimately, is two people making a public permanent promise before a crowd of witnesses. Your wedding guest list is not just people you want to eat crab cakes and tear up the dance floor, right? Like your wedding guest list are the people that you want to hear you make a promise, hold you accountable to the promises that you are making, right? They're your witnesses to the vows that you're going to make. That's what a wedding is. And everything else is extraneous. It's just kind of like lace, decorations, right? To the promises that you are making, Uh, before your cloud of witnesses. You need to listen to the vows that couples give. If they're doing it right, they're not saying anything about what they are feeling at that present moment. And they're not saying uh, anything about what the other person looks like. Of course, they're feeling love in that moment. Of course, that person looks amazing, right? But that's not a wedding vow. That's a statement of fact, right? A wedding vow is a promise of future love regardless of the circumstances. This is to say, like, pick a date in the future. Any date. Somebody just throw a date out there. April 8th. April 8th, what year? 
2024. All right, April 8, 2024. You're saying like, I don't know where I'm going to be on April 8th, 2024. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I don't know what I'm going to be going through. But there is one thing that I am certain of. There's one thing that I can guarantee. I will love you on that day. No matter what I'm feeling, no matter what's happening, I'm committed to you and committed to loving you on April 8th, 2024, and the day after that and the day after that. I will be committed to you and to your good. For richer or poorer, in joy or sorrow, in sickness or in health, no matter what the future holds, I am committed to you and I'm committed to your well-being until death do us part. That is the essence of marriage. You're not promising that on April 8th, 2024, it's going to be a sunny day and everything's going to be calm and my emotions are going to be stable. And You can't promise that. What you are saying is that the current of my life, the current is going to be moving in your direction. I promise that no matter what's going on, on the surface, I will be there for you. And I'm going to be there for with you and for you, committed to your good. It's the essence of marriage. A covenantal relationship stand in sharp contrast to contractual consumer relationships. I have a contractual consumer relationship with Netflix. Um, so long as Netflix shows, shows that I'm happy to watch, I'm happy with them. And as so long as I pay my bills on time, they're happy with me. But if a certain point in time, I get sick and tired of watching B-rated movies and B-rated television and documentaries and comedy specials. I can leave Netflix and I can switch to a different streaming service. That's how consumer contractual relationships work. Right? Personal satisfaction, my satisfaction is of ultimate value. But that's not so in covenantal relationships. In covenantal relationships, people commit themselves to future actions Recognizing, of course, that the future is largely unknown and certain. You don't know what the future holds. It's uncertain. But what you're saying is, this is one thing you can be certain of. I will love you. It's uncertain. It's unknown. It's mysterious. But this isn't. This is fixed. My love for you. I'm not going anywhere. Right? I'm committed to you. I'm committed to your good. That's what marriage is. That's the essence of it. This brings us to point number two, the messiness of marriage, okay? The messiness of marriage. One of the biggest mistakes uh, that we can make going into marriage is thinking that the mission of marriage is to make us happy. That's not the point. You will find happiness in marriage like you will find good weather in Burlington, Vermont. It happens, (laughs) This doesn't happen all the time, right? It's going to come and it's going to go, like all emotions do. It's foolishness to expect happiness all the time. It's foolishness to demand happiness out of your life all the time, to demand it from another person, to make that the mission or meaning of your life or of your marriage. The point of marriage is not to make you happy. The point of marriage is to make you holy. The purpose of marriage is to cleanse you and to change you and to help you become more and more the person that 
God created you to be. An image bearer of God. An image bearer of love. More and more like Jesus and mysteriously more and more yourself, right? The truest and best version of yourself at the same time. That's what marriage is for, to make you into that person, to help you become more and more that person. Here's where I'm pulling that from. Look at Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, Paul in this passage likens husbands loving their wives to the ways that Jesus loves you. When you married Jesus, as it were, when you, by faith, entered into a covenantal relationship with him, Jesus is committed to you, and he's committed to your good. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to cleanse you, transform you, change you. And the underlying assumption of all of that is that you need these things, that you need to be cleansed, washed, sanctified, and renewed, that you need to be made whole, and that you need to be made holy that we enter into our relationship with Jesus broken and messy and that he's there to make us whole and clean. We enter into marriage the exact same way, friends. We enter into marriage broken and messy, needing to be cleansed, needing to be uh, renewed. Marriage is not too all-star lovers joining some Olympic dream team of love. It's not like the trophy you get for having proven yourself to be outstanding in the ways of love. So here's marriage. You know, congratulations. Marriage is for you. It's not how it works. And marriage is not like two superheroes putting their rings together to create Captain Amazing Love. Right? Like it was Captain Planet or something. That's not what's happening on your wedding day. A better, more accurate picture of marriage comes from the lyrics of Death Cab for Cutie, When Soul Meets Body. Marriage is two filthy hands washing one another till not a speck remains. That's what marriage is. It's two filthy hands washing one another till not a speck remains. One of my favorite songs to play after a large group, Wednesday Night Fellowship, and one of my favorite songs to reference when I get to marry people, which I sometimes do, right? Um, Mostly in the summer. I've had the privilege of getting to marry some former RUS students. It's awesome. But one of my favorite songs that I get to reference is Vance Joy's This Mess Is Mine. Now, when I hear these lyrics, hold on, darling, right? This mess is yours, now your mess is mine. I imagine God singing those words over me. Mess was yours. Now your mess is mine. That is a great way of describing God's relationship to us, which is to say it's a great way of describing husbands' relationships to their wives. This mess was yours, but now your mess is mine. In 2016... The most emailed and most read article in the New York Times was an op-ed by an author named Elaine de Baton 
why you will marry the wrong person. And that op-ed starts this way. It's one of the things we're most afraid might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. He continues, partly it's because we have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to others. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on any early dinner date would be, and how are you crazy? See, marriage is always two broken, messy, crazy people saying I do to one another. That's what it always is. It's two sinners saying I do for richer or poorer and sickness and health. Not are you crazy, but how are you crazy? See, like a mirror, marriage will show you who you really are and what you're really like. You'll see yourself more up close and personal than ever before. One of the privileges of being single, Elaine de Paton writes, is living with the sincere impression that you're quite easy to live with. (laughs) On your own, you don't realize how quirky and stubborn and selfish you are and can be. But all that changes once you get married. What easily flew under the radar is now being shown to you and maybe screamed at you as you do live with another person. Right. And this really is a severe mercy. It's painful at times, but it's also for your good. And I can give you a personal example of this. Um, Depression, anxiety and depression is something that runs in my family. And it's something that I've probably dealt with for a really long time. Before I was married, uh, I was able to mask it and hide it from my friends, from my family, from my roommates, even from myself. I didn't even realize how sad I could be at times. This was just by myself. I just didn't really, just didn't know. But then I got married. And when you get married, uh, you get naked with your spouse. But that's not just a physical nakedness. Uh, My whole life was in some ways exposed. There's a totally new degree of vulnerability in my life for better or worse. And that means Megan can love me better than anybody else on planet Earth. It also means she can hurt me more right, than anybody else uh, on planet Earth. Living in such uh, close proximity and intimacy meant that Megan was seeing how sad I could be and how often. And she would tell me, you're sad again. And I didn't realize it. And she would tell me again and again and again. And this was hard to see at first. It was hard to see the ways that my baggage weighed my loved ones down. It was hard to see the ways that my porcupine quills would hurt someone that I loved and had pledged to love. But as I said, this was a severe mercy. Because my marriage revealed my depression but it also helped me to be healed of it and is helping me, right, to be healed of it. 
as we said a few weeks ago, it's hard, if not impossible, to fix what you don't see. And marriage is going to show you a lot. Like any close friendship would. It just reveals a lot. Your friends really are there to share your secrets, secrets with and also to expose your blind spots. And that's really what marriage is. It's just friendship on steroids. It's friendship with sex. It's part of it. I, um, I like how my friend Matt illustrates this point. He says, let's say you and I go to the doctor. You unrobe, you get naked, it's uncomfortable. Like the doctor comes in, he takes a good look at you, he runs some tests, and then he comes back in and he says, I've got some bad news for you. You've got cancer. A good doctor isn't then going to say, that sucks. Uh, good luck with that. A good doctor is going to sit down with you and counsel you and commit himself to helping you get better. That's what a good doctor is going to do. If he can't personally help you get better, he's going to connect you with some people who can. And a good spouse is like that as well. When they see your sin, they don't just leave you there. They help you get better. Not by being passive-aggressive or leaving you or shaming you, but instead by sticking with you. By reaffirming what they've already promised you on your wedding day. That I am with you and I am for you. That I am committed to you and your welfare till death do us part. The messiness of marriage has profound implications for the kind of person you want to marry. For most people, the most important thing when picking a spouse is looks. Physical appearance. Then taste in movies, music, hobbies, politics, etc. But I want you to think how different your appearance was and your taste in music and movies was 10 years ago. Now I want you to think how different your appearance will be and your taste in music and movies and politics will be 10 years from now and then 20 years and 30 years and 40 years. Y'all, it is foolish to base a relationship like marriage on something so fickle and so impermanent as your tastes and hobbies and physical appearance. All those things will change. What you want to look for and what you really need to ask yourself when dating, to decide if you want to marry this person, is, is, this someone who's going, is this somebody who's growing in grace and whose growth I can commit to? And secondly, is this someone who's going to be able to help me to grow into Christ-likeness as well? Is this someone who's growing in grace and whose growth I can commit to And is this someone who's going to help me to grow into Christ-likeness as well? It's the most important thing that you can ask. Here's some follow-up questions. Does this person understand their need for grace? How do they respond to their sin and their failure? Do they run and hide from it? Do they mask it? Do they deny it? Do they dismiss it? Do they get angry at you when you show it to them? Or are they humble? Are they repentant? Do they say sorry? Do they own and acknowledge their mistakes? 
Does this person give grace to other people? How do they respond when other people hurt them? Are they frustrated? Do they get enraged? Are they explosive? Or do they reach across the aisle? Do they show forgiveness? Do they hold out an olive branch? Do they seek peace and reconciliation? Is this a person who's being shaped by love and truth and the grace of Christ? Like, is the love and goodness of God flowing into their life and therefore coming out of it? Is it entering into your life and coming out of yours? Some questions to ask. Let me quote from that Baton article one more time. He writes, The person who's best suited to us is not the person who shares our every taste. He or she doesn't exist. But the person who can negotiate differences in taste intelligently and tolerate differences with generosity. I love this next line. Compatibility is the achievement of love. It must not be its precondition. Compatibility is the achievement of love. It must not be its precondition. It's an immensely wise article. This brings us to um, our third and final point, the drama of marriage. We've talked about the essence of marriage. We've talked about its messiness. But now let's talk about, finally, the drama. In Ephesians 5, when Paul's talking about marriage, he can't help but talk about marriage in non-Jesus terms. In verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And immediately, Paul adds, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, what Paul is saying is that marriage, at its best, is a drama. It's a play. It's a living, breathing work of art. And it gives us a glimpse, it gives us a foretaste of what the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-loving, all-redeeming love of God is like. See, when your spouse sees you at your worst, and then when he or she doesn't reject you, but moves toward you at great cost to him or herself, when they stay true to their promises and they remain committed to you and to your well-being. When that happens, all of us, you and me and we, catch a glimpse in that moment of who Jesus is and what his love is like. Love like this shows forth his perfection and our redemption. And this is what marriages are meant to reveal. In this marital drama, there are roles and parts to play. Okay, the chief direction to husbands as well as wives is found in verse 21. Be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this direction is given to both men and women. He is saying, both of you, be submitting. And not just once. Do this all the time. Be submitting is sort of this continuous action. Always be doing this for one another. Paul then goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands. And here's what he's not saying. Paul's not saying that women are submissive or inferior to men. 
He's not saying that women should deny their strength, ideas, opinions, or individuality in marriage. Instead, what he's communicating is that women, you should use your strength in the service of love to help your husband to become a better man. That's what's being communicated there. In the Old Testament, Eve is described as Adam's helper. And I know that language of helper can sometimes carry a negative connotation. It's sort of like if I was building something and I would say to Willa, my daughter, like, hold these nails while I hammer this in, right? Be my helper. That's not how the Bible, that's not how the Bible talks about it. That's not, that's not what it means. Helper is a, uh, is a term of strength. God is described as a helper. The Holy Spirit is described as a helper. Eve is able to help Adam, right? A wife is able to help a husband because she has gifts and she has strengths that the man doesn't have. That's why she's able to help him, right? And what Paul is saying is that in this mutually submissive relationship, wives should use their gifts in loving service. Not to lord over their husbands or to compete with him, but to lovingly help him, right, to serve him. And then Paul goes on to say something very similar to men, maybe even taking it a step further for them. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. His instructions to men is that, that men should lay down everything, their lives even, to make their wives beautiful, radiant, and gloriously complete. Sacrifice your life to make your wife beautiful, to make her become exquisite. Love her like Christ loves the church. See, on the cross, Jesus wasn't seeing us at our best. Definitely not. He was loving us at our worst. God's love is proven in this. That while we were still sinners, and not Captain Love amazing, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus literally sacrificed himself for you and for the sake of your relationship. He gave up everything to be reconciled to you, to make you spotless and blameless, to make you holy, to make you his, to make you his bride and indeed the love of his life. Y'all, the essence of marriage is commitment. It's two sinners saying, I do. And any time two sinners say, I do, there's going to be a mess, right? Because your mess is mine, and your mess is mine. But when two people make a commitment to wash one another until they're clean, that has the power to change you. And they don't just say it, but they actually do it. That is a, that is a life-changing, transforming relationship. It happens in friendships. It happens in marriages. When somebody chooses you, and they commit to you, and they commit to your good. That's what our marriage is meant to show forth. It's, meant, it's what it's meant to be. A drama, a foretaste, a glimpse of the love that Jesus has for you and for me. Let's pray.